Welcome to The Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. This week, we're on kind of a short week since it's only been a week and a few days since our last episode. Uh, So instead of covering a lot of news stories this week, we're going to focus on varying proposals uh, for reforming police departments around the country. Um, A number of organizations have proposals and a lot of people have some information about that so that's what we're going to be focusing on today we're going to do some quick news uh, and then we also have a little bit of happy news and as always troop deployments um so we don't have any feedback from the last episode so i think we're going to go right into news stories and david you had something for us right yes uh so um There has been a little bit of discussion, in case you haven't noticed, about how we can get the police to stop murdering people. Um, One of the uh, proposals of which I am most fond is uh, card-carrying libertarian member of Congress, Justin Amash, has has introduced a bill alongside a number of Democratic... Uh, Congress people uh, essentially ending qualified immunity. This seems like an unambiguously good idea to me, and I strongly encourage every single listener to follow the bill with rapt attention, and anyone who gives it the tiniest bit of uh, pushback should be voted out of office in November. Yeah, and we've discussed qualified immunity on here for probably the last three or four episodes. The Supreme Court has not yet granted cert on any of the cases, but they're still uh, piling up, and none of them have been denied cert yet. So the uh, the assumption is still that they are going to be granting cert, but we will update on that as soon as there's anything to update on. But yes, in the meantime, I think we're all in favor of Justin Amash's bill to end qualified immunity legislatively. Is there any chance this is actually going to make it onto the floor? I think there's a pretty good chance it'll make it to the floor, because uh, I think the committee it's in is uh, pretty strongly blue. Probably it'll pass in Congress. In the House of Reps, you mean? Yeah, probably doesn't have great prospects in the Senate, uh, although people are... Uh, Republicans are starting to notice that uh, Trumpism is a good recipe to get massacred down ballot in November. So, maybe. Yeah, if you had asked me a week ago, I would have said not a chance. Um, But we have been seeing this week a little more movement on the sort of lockstep support of the police on the right. So, you know... I still don't think it has a very good chance of passing, but you know, I'm not going to say never. And uh, we've seen even more movement on the lockstep support of Trump on the right, uh, watching uh, various and sundry Republican um, government officials uh, frantically denying that they ever had anything to do with Trump has been kind of delightful <laughs> to watch. Although I do have to, uh, I do have to give a shout out to uh, my own home state senator Lindsey Graham, who has recently adopted a blonde comb over in Trumpian fashion as his hairstyle, <laughs> and I, I, uh, 
it amuses me every time I see a rat swim towards a sinking ship. So, good on you, Lindsay. Hope you get retired in November. <laughs> All right. And the second uh, somewhat radical proposal that appears to be actually happening is that the city of Minneapolis has voted to abolish its police force. And did I hear correctly that the vote was passed by a veto veto-proof majority? Correct. So this happened yesterday. The day and the day before that, the the mayor of Minneapolis had come out against this and said, "No, we're not gonna we're not gonna disband the police." And the the city council just overrode him. Uh, so it's veto proof. So we can't do anything about it. Uh, now I'm I'm pretty unclear about what their plan is. Uh, they've been pretty vague so far about what they're going to do instead of having police. But it's pretty clear that, at least in the city of Minneapolis, the police aren't really helping matters yeah. at all. So I say good riddance. And if they want some suggestions on what to have instead of police, they can call me, or better yet, David Friedman, who wrote a book on the subject. I, I mean, while I agree with you, I don't think the vast majority of people are even aware that's an option and will probably just get a less shitty police department um, instead. But yeah, that was... That was my assumption, though. What the what they've been saying is they're exploring alternative uh, uh, ways of providing public safety. So that sounds like they're trying to, to put in something that's not a police force. That would be absolutely amazing. Yeah. But as I said, they've been very vague so far. Yeah. For a long time, the police in a lot of cities act more like an occupying force than anybody who's there to help the public. So I, I've always thought it would be a better idea to only allow people to police a district that they actually live in. Um, I don't know if that would have made that big a difference, but trying things other than police in general is a good idea. Oh, and uh, real quick, since we are sort of peripherally talking about um, anarchism, uh, can I please encourage people to stop using a bad argument real quick? Uh, so a lot of libertarian and especially anarchist types have been saying that the only reason we have police brutality is because there's a, a monopoly on policing, and that is patently not true, because uh, Germany and Sweden and Iceland also have monopolies, and yet their monopolies are much less deadly than ours. Uh, what is true is that because we have a monopolistic court system, we had a court system that was unilaterally able to create the horrifically terrible concept of, of uh, qualified immunity. So there is a problem that is related to monopoly, but that problem is not a monopoly on police, and if you had some sort of private police force, but that police force still had qualified immunity, I think we would still be in a mess fairly similar to this one. Uh, so please stop using that argument. You're making the rest of us look bad. Yeah, it seems pretty obvious that if you take away any consequences for abuse of power, you're going to get a lot of abuse of power. Yeah, it's almost like economists were right when we talk about elasticities and stuff. I'm really curious as to how they're going to manage the public perception of law and order here, because it seems to me that as important as the actual having some sort of, uh, you know, policing force is just the appearance of, of such. Because uh, even if there is various community watch groups and security services and such, 
until the word gets out that these things are effective and do stop crime, there might be a surge when people say, hey, there's no police force, it's free reign time. Yeah, and I do think that, um, I do think that having some sort of uniformed law enforcement presence is very helpful, because, um, uh, there have been a lot of Law and Econ papers written about this, uh, they basically find that having a lot of police officers around in crime-ridden areas, even if they're not necessarily, like, actively engaging in enforcement, uh, does a lot to bring down crime rates. It's just not clear to me that those benefits come from having the particular blue uniforms of a citywide police department that is monopolistic especially is subject to qualified immunity, etc., etc. There are ways you can get those benefits that don't involve having police as we have understood them in America for the last 20 years. Yeah, just having uh, community groups like the Guardian Angels or the Black Panthers around in some sort of uniformish getup is often enough. It was interesting, the Black Panthers, the reason they chose the black leather jacket and beret as, uh, as their uniform is because... Um, the, one of the founders said that he knew every single black person in the city owned a black leather jacket, and berets were really cheap to get in a thrift store, so it was basically, you know, a uniform everyone already had very easy access to. Huh. I hadn't heard about That's them, uh, I hadn't heard about them being, um, like, de facto law enforcement, but I'd be interested in learning more. They, I mean, originally they were watching, uh, just observing police carrying out their duties as mm. a, a form of primitive, you know, cell phone videos that we have now, more of a making sure the cops aren't doing terrible things They, because people are watching them. But yeah, they expanded uh, greatly into community outreach, providing, um, providing food for children that didn't get enough school lunches and stuff like that. They turned into a, you know, rather major community group before they were infiltrated and brought down. Ah, nice. Yeah. All right. But so assuming we are going to have police... Uh, there's an activist named Samuel Sinyangwe, I believe is how it's pronounced, who has a Twitter thread that we will post in the show notes that proposes a lot of police reforms, and he claims that these are very evidence-based reforms. Um, and I'd just like to go through a few of them. Uh, the first point is that body cameras, which is what people were really advocating for in the past few uh, times there have been mass demonstrations they don't really reduce violence and I've heard that from a number of sources um, that yeah. body cams um, they don't reduce violence and primarily serve to exonerate police when they're falsely accused which is good um, and I support that but it's not really a thing that is going to help reduce uh, police use of force because they just turn them off or cover them uh, when they're going to be doing shady stuff I was really surprised by that when I first read it. I thought that, I really thought police body cams were going to make a difference, but I guess it turns out when you can't be held liable for things, even when there's direct proof that you did them, what the hell difference does it make? Yeah, I, I think body cams might be salvageable. Uh, I think if we um, eliminate qualified immunity, and I'm going to keep harping on that, because I just, at this point, I really don't see a way forward for enacting meaningful reforms that doesn't involve getting rid of QI. It's just so toxic to the concept of 
criminal law enforcement. Um, so if we get rid of qualified immunity and then have some sort of either, uh, like, police department level policy or ideally some kind of law where if a body cam has been tampered with and there's a complaint, there's a presumption in favor of the complainant. Um, I think if you had those two, then the presence of body cams would be, um, would be beneficial. But just because, like, there's no way to hold police accountable, even if you do have ironclad proof, they just aren't doing anything. Uh, so I, again, I think, I think the, the lack of results there is more attributable to qualified immunity than it is to just the body camps themselves. And there's already a legal doctrine that deals with what you're talking about called spoliation of evidence. And I think what you could do is if you have body cameras, then any, any action in which the body camera footage is not available, you would create a presumption of spoliation of evidence. And I think that would do a lot to mitigate the issues that uh, have been observed with body cameras currently. Uh, because it does, I, I also would really like it if that could be salvaged, because any time you're not relying on eyewitness testimony, it's better. I just realized we might have uh, gone into an effective death spiral about body cams. Uh, so that's something we should maybe keep an eye on in future discussion and make sure it doesn't become a problem. Now explain that. What's an effective death spiral? Uh, so an effective death spiral is a rationalist thing where basically... Um, uh, so there's this heuristic called the halo effect where you assume that if something has one good property it is it has a general characteristic of goodness and therefore you can usually falsely infer other good properties that may or may not apply and an effective death spiral is like the uh extremely degenerate form of that where um where you have glorified something as the great idea and therefore can do no wrong and it's possible i don't think it's happening but it sounds like we might be at risk of it happening that we held up body cams for so long as the panacea that'll fix this problem that now we won't let go of it even when the evidence comes in and it turns out they don't do that much Again, because of qualified immunity making the presence or lack of evidence moot, uh, I don't think that's happened. I think that there's just a good argument that they're a piece of the puzzle, but not the whole thing. Uh, but again, we should keep an eye on that for future discussions. Yeah, I've also been um, somewhat heartened by the discussion that's been going on around the the current protests where body cameras really are not at the top of anyone's list i think people have seen that body cameras aren't really fixing the problem and are moving on to other suggestions yeah um one of the other things uh that seems to not do much is implicit bias training 
which was a big thing that a lot of departments were doing and a lot of activists were asking for, um, in, you know, in previous years and in previous protests. Um, and it looks like the implicit bias training doesn't really do that much. Um, which is not that surprising, I don't think. It's not only is it not surprising, I think implicit bias training really does more to uh, bolster the the people on the right than anything else because it just seems kind of dumb and hokey uh, on its face. And it's telling people like, you know, no matter how good of a person you are, there's this secret racist within you that is affecting everything. And maybe that's true, but I don't think the racism is really all that secret all that often anyway. And the fact that it doesn't seem to help anything um, makes a big difference, in my opinion. It just annoys people and makes them think that there's these busybodies accusing them of always being evil no matter what they do. Yeah, and I, I also think that there's a problem with implicit bias training that's uh, similar to a lot of other spheres, where the people who will take it most seriously are the people who least need it. Like, yeah. when you think of the yeah. kinds of people who go into a seminar about implicit racism and are really paying attention and trying to address those problems, they're probably not going to be the people who stand on someone's neck for nine minutes anyway. And the people who are going to stand on people's necks for nine minutes, they're just going to laugh their way through give the obviously correct answer on the quiz at the end, and then immediately forget it ever happened or possibly shitpost about it on Facebook later. Yeah. So, on to what does work. Um, the first suggestion here is improving police use of force policies, um, which is on a lot of the demands that a number of organizations are taking. The NAACP... Um, has a lot of use of force policy things on their list of demands, including banning chokeholds and knee holds, uh, in having a use of force continuum, which is something a lot of the police departments use, uh, where higher degrees of force can only be used if certain criteria are met, and you're required to start out at lower degrees of force. And so it goes anywhere from you know, an officer's presence on the scene is is considered the lowest uh, use of force. And the highest is deadly force. And then you have a number of steps in between where, you know, uh, drawing a service weapon is considered a use of force. Giving orders is considered a use of force. Uh, compliance holds are a use of force. And every time you step up your use of force, there have to be definite criteria that make that um, within the policy to do. And the data does seem to show that police training in use of force, if it is focused on when not to use force and how to de-escalate, does have results. It sounds like the exact opposite of what I've heard police are usually trained in. Or, I don't know, maybe I've not uh, had greatly representative samples, but from the couple people I know who have worked in police uh, departments, the focus was very much on you could be ambushed and killed at any point, so always be afraid for your life and never fail to you know reach for the weapon if you feel at all in danger. Constant vigilance, in other words. Not just constant vigilance, constant fear uh, and paranoia. Like It almost feels like a job for cowards, the way they're described. But then it's not a uh, Harry Potter reference. 
Oh, okay. I have to say, though, I worry that there might be a similar problem with uh, use of force policy alterations, um, which I suppose depends on how much the policy actually has teeth. Um, but it might lead to a similar problem where if it's just, like, training and no actual punishments for excessive force, then uh, you might have a similar problem where the cops who weren't going to murder people anyway uh, take it very seriously, and then the ones that are actually problems uh, are the ones that are just going to laugh off the training. So... I I can't say I'm terribly uh, bullish on that, especially when qualified immunity is still a thing. If you know the word, sing along. Um, but yeah, if if there are like actual teeth to those um, to those policies, then yeah, that could work. Well, yeah, I am bullish on it, and here's why. Because um, I have some experience in this. I used to serve as an attorney for the city of Camden and handled a few police use of force cases. And in those cases, what you do is you have, you know, a citizen alleging excessive force. And to defend that case, you call in a use of force expert and they come in and testify about what is the appropriate level of force to use in any given situation. But if the department has a policy in place the expert has to testify about that department's policy. And they tell the judge or the jury, okay, here's what needs to happen for force to be justified. And if the department has a policy that has that written down and codified, then that's what the standard is. And if a, you can prove that an officer went outside that standard, then they no longer have qualified immunity. That's, that's one way to get around it. Huh. Wait, is it common okay. for police for, for police to not have standards for when they can use lethal force? No, they all have standards. What they're talking about is reforming those standards. Um, specifically, the NAACP is asking for six, uh, at least six steps on the continuum, um, which is not certainly not universal. Uh, my experience is only with Camden. I think Camden did have at least six on their continuum, um, but a lot of departments don't. It's, you know, and they can have, they can basically they can have whatever policy they want. The eight can't wait campaign, which is actually something I support because it's eight steps that they're wanting police departments to implement right now. And they're saying, this is what will end these protests. And it's all things that can be implemented immediately for no money. And a lot of it is about reforming use of force policies. So number one is banning chokeholds and strangleholds. Number two is requiring de-escalation. Um, a lot of use of force policies do not require officers to attempt to de-escalate a situation. It's only about escalating. Number three is they want every use of force policy to require warning shots before firing at a person. Uh, number four, they want use of force policies to require exhaustion of all non-lethal methods before shooting, which I don't even think is in the Camden policy. Uh, it's something that is mostly not present in use of force policies. Um, number five is requiring officers to intervene when they see excessive force from other officers. That's not really something you'd see in a use of force policy, but it's you know a different policy that the officers would have. Number six, 
ban shooting at moving vehicles, which, you know, the, the data shows really causes a lot of collateral damage. Number seven on eight can't wait is simply to require a use of force continuum because not every department has one. And number eight is just a requirement that officers report every use of force or threat of force. So these are mostly things that will go would go directly in a department's use of force policy. Okay, I think, I mean, some of these, I believe, would cost money, but I think these are all great ideas and should be done anyway. Yeah, so, uh, Wes, given what you said about how the uh, actual cases go on these, consider my um, objection to the use of force as a real fix withdrawn. They, do, they are a good idea, given... The uh, facts of how those cases go, of which I was not aware. Yeah, and so I yeah, so I really support this uh, reforming of use of force policies um, in line with what the NAACP and the Eight Can't Wait campaign are asking for. This is going to take a serious change of culture in a lot of police stations. I know that a lot of uh, places people are taught to shoot directly at center of mass and never bother with disabling shots or warning shots because they are considered useless you should always aim to put someone down immediately yeah you're gonna pull the trigger yeah yeah this goes back to what you were talking about earlier there's this really terrible like warrior training out there that a lot of a lot of police officers take that has that exact attitude it's like you are a, a soldier in battle and you you know if you feel threatened you just kill whoever is threatening you as yeah. quickly and as efficiently as possible and it's this this really awful attitude and instills this really you know hyper masculine aggressive attitude in the police officers that take it it's how you would train an occupying force in an extremely unfriendly nation that uh, wants you out yeah and speaking of which the next policy um that uh mr sinyangwe proposed was demilitarizing the police and this is something that I've heard a lot uh, from a lot of different sources, but it is a problem. There is a program where the American military gives excess equipment to police departments. And this is military equipment. It can be guns. It can be troop uh, carriers uh, or other vehicles. Uh, some police departments have tanks. And it just it causes police departments to become more military more militarized in attitude in addition to equipment um and they there are some studies cited that show that departments that receive this equipment have more officer involved shootings than those that don't and they even try to control for violent people by uh analyzing how many dogs get killed and more dogs get killed by these uh departments that receive military equipment um, and some good news on that front congress has announced they're they're at least going to start holding hearings on uh, legislation to end or seriously curtail that program um but it will we'll see how that shakes out yeah i'd uh recommend people who aren't already doing so follow the uh writer i think he's still at the uh Washington Post, but I'm not sure, uh, Radley Balco. He also ran a blog called The Watch for a long time. He's uh, He's been following the uh, criminal justice reform slash police violence 
uh, beat for a long time. He actually wrote a book called The Rise of the Warrior Cop about this exact issue. Um, he's a fantastic journalist. Uh, he had a really good piece recently about uh, basically arguing that uh, police violence is a racist issue because uh, there's a not entirely implausible argument that police violence and police murders are a problem, but they're not a racial problem. Uh, and I actually think Scott Alexander's post, which is a few years old now, uh, is the best argument for that case. Uh, and, but Radley Balco had an op-ed recently uh, arguing that it is a race issue, and I think he does so pretty persuasively. So I'd recommend uh, Scott Alexander's Police Shootings More Than You Ever Wanted to Know and Radley Polko's piece, whose headline I can't remember, but it will be in the show notes, for the two different sides of that issue. And uh, Radley Polko's work in general for, uh, for excellent journalism on police militarization and why it's terrible. He also has a tag on the watch uh, that is something along the lines of the police war on dogs, uh, where he documents every time that police murder family pets, uh, which is a less serious issue than uh, them murdering people, but still pretty bad. Yeah, and on a personal level, I will say that I was out, I think, two days ago, uh, just walking down to the park and saw what was clearly a military troop carrier uh, that had been painted black and had Voorhees Police Department written on the side of it. And I immediately felt less safe. And, you know, I'm a privileged white dude, so I feel like I, there is no, absolutely no reason why the Voorhees Police Department needed that vehicle. Yeah. Okay, we are in agreement. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, the next suggestion is reforming union contracts. And this is also something that I have some experience in with the Camden police. Um, so a few years ago, and this was while I was working in, for the law firm that was representing Camden, the, what the city of Camden did was they disbanded their police force and formed a new police force that was run by the county. Uh, and they basically hired most of the same officers. They had the same police chief. Um, it was just a way to end the union contract and negotiate a new one because the union contracts are, they, they, they could, so many of them put so much in there that is just outrageous. Um, Tyler Cowan has an article about it that we'll link in the show notes. Um, uh, but say 50 cities and 13 states have limits on how police can be interrogated in their union contracts. And mind you that these are the same people who have no limits that are other than the constitutional ones about how they can interrogate suspects. But when it comes to them, they get special treatment. Some of these, a lot of these protections, I think, are really good protections. They basically amount to you can't torture the people you're interrogating. And I think they should be... Um, extended to everybody as opposed to only police get them yeah um but some of them are really outrageous like some of them have uh the you can't interrogate an officer 
before you tell them the evidence you have against them. Um, some of them have uh, limits of like an hour or less for how long you can interrogate them. And didn't some of them also include uh, you can meet with your other people that you're charged with to get your story straight? Yeah. Um, yeah, some of them require like a 48 hours warning before you can interrogate them. Okay. Which is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's this. Yeah, yeah it's this. And it's it's just so, so hypocritical because these are the police. They know what what all these provisions mean. And it's just really, uh, really ridiculous. Uh, some contracts have um, automatic erasure of complaints and reprimands that police have gotten. So if a police officer abuses his authority and uses excessive force, uh, gets reprimanded for that. Then maybe a year or two down the line, it just gets automatically erased and no one ever knows. Um, something that I did not see mentioned, but I want to bring up, is uh, something called courtesy cards. Do you guys know oh, what God. these are? Yes, no, they're disgusting. I don't think I want to, but go ahead and uh, tell well, me. Anyway. Well, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what they are. Courtesy cards are little cards that are issued. The New Jersey State Police issue these, and I think that New York does too. But I'm not sure about that. But it's definitely the state of New Jersey issues them that say this person is a family member of a police officer. Oh, yeah. And I have heard about these. Jesus Christ. <laughs> the point and the idea, the, the reason they give them out is that when you get pulled over, you can present it and then you don't get a ticket. Or if you get in some if you're going to be arrested for you show it to them and then you either don't get arrested or you get treated better or something and it's just this it, it completely blows my mind that this is a thing that's not only legal but that that the actual government issues yeah and puts in the contract how many they get yes that is a big part there was a there, uh, i think it was like two to three years ago in new jersey there was a big uh dust up because they were negotiating their contracts and they wanted to cut the number of cards they got to like 15. And then the, the, <laughs> the officers were just raising hell about it. And it's, Oh, it is the, the most obvious institutional corruption that, that I've seen in the police force. And it is disgusting. I want to say that this kind of feeds into the whole, all cops are bastards or all cops are bad, whichever way you want to put it. Um, in that the system weeds out good cops. I, I've heard of cops that don't want to um, honor these things because they consider it, you know, corruption. And yeah. so, you know, they pull someone over for a ticket, uh, running a stop sign or something, and the person busts out their card and they're like, look, I'm sorry, I'm not corrupt like my friends are. They don't use those exact words. You're still getting a ticket. <laughs> then, the Sorry, I'm not corrupt. Uh, yeah. I know you <laughs> assumed that I was, but... Right. Fair assumption, I guess. But the family member then complains to their uh, brother or uncle or whatever, who's the cop. And then the cop turns around and says to everyone in the police precinct, hey, this cop that we all work with, he's a bastard. He doesn't honor these cards. And, like, they vandalize his locker. They give him a horrible time. And the cops eventually either are forced out because they have principles or they acquiesce and just start doing the same thing everyone else does. Yeah, I've heard and the it's, same it's, thing. It's a system that takes even people that are good and want to make things good and forces them 
to be as bad as the system is. Well, yeah, and that's, and, I mean, that happens on a you, larger scale when it comes to yeah. um, uh, uh, excessive force. Yeah. And I mean, any I, cop that's the rats on another cop is has that happened to them, but ten times worse. Yeah, and I can't remember the exact source for this, so uh, take it with a grain of salt, but I remember listening to a podcast or something about, like, how uh, police officers who um, who complained about brutality committed by other police officers and uh, that sort of thing were just horrifically mistreated. And, like, even at really high levels, like, this one uh, officer, I think, was... Um, I think he was, like, in L.A., uh, and he was reassigned to a precinct in San Francisco or something with no relocation package. So he had, like, a four-hour commute every day. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, again, take all that with a grain of salt, because I can't remember the details of the source, but, like, yeah, th there is... Pretty much no doubt that the system we have systematically selects against good people, and that is horrific. Yeah, and I can tell you that um, while police unions generally have the backs of officers who are subject to discipline, um, there are a lot of things that police departments can do that are not uh, covered by that that are still punishments. Um, including being transferred to uh, undesirable uh, uh, shifts or um, undesirable assignments, uh, moved around a lot. Um, and this is all stuff that was done uh, in the Camden Police Department that I saw officers testify about um, that's just done as punishments, but that doesn't uh, require any kind of justification because it's not looked at as a demotion or a, um, a cut in pay or anything like that, that that triggers review. Uh, by the way, quick uh, note about the Radley Balco piece I was talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, the piece itself is actually making a slightly different argument. It's still one that I think is important, but on the pro on the way to make that case, he does make the argument that uh, police shootings are a racist issue, uh, but he mostly leaves it to links. So uh, we'll just put the Radley Volko piece in the notes, but I emphatically recommend people actually click through to the um, articles he links to. Um, to get the uh, detailed breakdowns of the empirics. All right. And so the next prediction, or that I'm sorry, not prediction, the next suggestion uh, that is on this Twitter thread is to use predictive data analysis to predict which officers will cause problems. And this is a thing that police use all the time um, to try to figure out uh, recidivism rates or, um, you know, where there are going to be problems. And they suggest using this, again, on, on police to see who they expect is going to be committing um, excessive force in the future. 
and taking steps to keep them away from situations in which they could do that. Um, and they also cite, and this relates to what we were just talking about, uh, studies showing that working with an officer that uh, has used excessive force in the past, if you're partnered up with them or put on a team with them, that increases your likelihood to use excessive force. I just want to say that the uh, utopia libertarians want is minority report, but the minority is police. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's not what the minority and minority report is. No, I I haven't actually seen it, but the, the, <laughs> uh, the, we could tell. Yeah, the people who are who are getting prosecuted for crimes that they ha that they are going to commit in the future are just g police and other government officials. Please, yeah. yes. <laughs> All right, and uh, the next suggestion is that we encourage community organiza organizations to address crime rather than the police. Um, and this is something we were talking about earlier with Minneapolis. Um, but they, he cited a study saying that uh, the, the estimate that every for every 10 additional organizations that are focusing on crime and community life in a city um, – it leads to a 9% reduction in the murder rate, a 6% reduction in the violent crime rate, and a 4% reduction in the property crime rate. Um, so the community organizations are helping um, in places where the police are not necessarily. What counts as an organization? Like, is it an HOA or the YMCA or what kind of things here? Uh, uh, well, what uh, it said was... It's a private rights enforcement agency. It is not. <laughs> uh, I can dream, though. Yeah, they said organizations focusing on crime and community life. So I know in... I, I know a number of Philadelphia organizations that are specifically focused on, um, you know, community, keeping the community safe from crime. Like a neighborhood watch? Like a neighborhood watch, like a... Um, you know, community center to to keep you know keep the kids off the street. Just community activists. Uh, I'm not sure what counts as a an organization focusing on community life. Uh, YMCA may may fit the bill. I'd have to read the full study to see. Well, I mean, I could. I would definitely think that uh, since I live in townhomes and I have always had an HOA in my life, I would much rather have the HOA to complain to about the neighbor trashing the the neighborhood rather than having to call up the cops or something like that. Yeah. Like, I don't think the cops should even be involved with whether my neighbor is mowing his lawn or not. Yeah, I mean, as much as I hate HOAs, I certainly prefer them to the cops. Yeah. Mood. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to say real quick that the paper cited here is a sociology paper published in a sociology journal. And so I have not read it, but it is at least possible that the methodology is bad. And if any um, applied microeconomists focusing on law and economics want to take a look at this and use good methodology, which I assume sociologists don't because they're sociologists, uh, that would be an interesting paper. In fact, I might actually write it. Mm, I'll think about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I look forward to that. And the next suggestion is to direct emergency calls to mental health first responders when that's appropriate instead of police. 
Uh, and this is something that I've seen suggested by a number of organizations, is that when you call 911 and somebody's having a mental health crisis, they don't need police. What they need are people trained in dealing with people with mental health because the police are just going to show up and either arrest them or shoot them. Uh, and if you have actual first responders that are trained in dealing with people with mental health conditions, they can they can go out and at least attempt to de-escalate the situation uh, before it comes to, uh, you know, the kinds of things the police are going to do. Yeah, uh, so there's a, a bit of an, an amusing anecdote that happened not too far from where I live. Uh, so I live at the moment in Fairfax County, which is the second richest county in the United States. And there was a video going around of a man, in, a black man in Fairfax County, who was um, uh, clearly either high or in withdrawal. Uh, it's not clear from the video, but he is not violent. He's not belligerent. Uh, someone called 911. Uh medical team showed up and tried to treat him and he uh tried to tried to resist treatment in a non-violent way clearly not like taking swings at the emts or anything just trying to get away and a police shows up and tased him and with the with the way this guy looks him getting tased was clearly like uh, at the very least, a risky move from a health perspective, but he was nonviolent in a very rich, very peaceful part of the country. And just because the person who called this in called 911 instead of the direct line for the EMTs, he at least probabilistically could have gotten murdered. <laughs> instead of just getting treated for whatever problems he had. So yes, this is something that we desperately need. Yeah, and this is also part of the alternatives to police uh, that hopefully Minneapolis will be exploring. Excited to see what comes out of that. Yeah. All right. And the final suggestion is to step up federal investigations of police departments. Now, we caveats this suggestion with once Trump is gone, because his uh, <laughs> Justice Department doesn't seem to actually be interested in anything even remotely close to this. They have actually done away with uh, the whole consent decree, decree program that the Obama administration was doing that would impose rules on police departments that were seen as tolerating excessive force or other abuses of power um, that required the Justice Department intervention. Uh, the current Justice Department isn't really doing anything in that in that score. Uh, but so the suggestion is that, you know, once we have a competent uh, Justice Department, that they step up investigations of police departments. And uh, the idea is that when the, the government d investigates a police department, the data shows that the uh, officer-involved shooting rate drops. It's almost like if you hold people accountable for their actions, they behave better. Yeah, or at least if you got someone looking over your shoulder. So, mm -hmm. so the galaxy brain version of this is we tweet at Donald Trump 
that the police are saying mean things about him, and then we can get his <laughs> Justice Department to hold cops accountable. Yeah, maybe. Just uh, as long as it's about his ego, he might do it. So those are the suggestions from the Twitter thread that I was talking about. Uh, I mentioned before the 8 Can't Wait program, or the 8 Can't Wait organization, uh, which has their uh, immediate demands. The, N- the NAACP also has a couple other demands we didn't mention. Um, one of them is to include police disciplinary records in open record laws, which is um, something that people don't think about a lot, but is actually really important. Most open record laws um, in states do not include police records. Um, that That is shocking. Is it shocking? It, I feel like I should be shocked, and I actually still am, because maybe I'm just naive and I haven't learned my lesson yet. But, oh, my God, how did that get through? Police unions. Fucking A. Yeah, but um, every state, you know, has their own open records law. It's not a federal thing. Now, the federal government has their own, but it doesn't apply to state police or local police, which are the ones doing most of this excessive force. Um, and yeah, most of those laws have exceptions for police disciplinary records. Uh, certainly the one in New Jersey does, and I believe Pennsylvania. Uh, so that's something the NAACP is asking for, which seems obviously good. Yeah. And uh, real quick, just because we're talking about police unions, I want to say uh, teachers' unions are bad in a lot of the same ways that uh police unions are bad in that particular case it's more about doing a little bit of harm to a lot of people rather than doing a lot of harm to uh relatively few people uh but if we could get an alliance between left and right to abolish all public center uh public sector unions that would be just pg keen <laughs> i don't think that'll ever happen they they have their areas that they hate and the ones that they love will be protected forever like that there's no way the right is ever going to take the lessons that they have learned about teachers' unions and apply them to the police, and vice versa for the left. You're probably right, but again, I can dream. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, and the other N- NAACP demands are to deny recertification to officers who use deadly force that's out of compliance with federal guidelines, um, which I don't think anyone's going to do. Um, because that would require them adopting federal guidelines. And as we were talking about before, each department has their own use of force guidelines. But I would see it as a more realistic thing that you deny recertification to officers who use deadly force out of compliance with the local use of force policy. I am... I, I, so this is something that baffles me. Like, when you look at the police officers who are getting their names in the news for these viral um, police brutality cases. Mm -hmm. Like, this usually isn't their first violation. Like, the guy... No, almost never. The guy who murdered George Floyd, he had, like, 12, including four previous murders. How the fuck is that guy still a cop? Like, what dystopian hellscape... I mean, yeah, I know, but... Like, what dystopian hellscape are we even living in that that's a thing that can happen? That's a good question. Yeah, so, yeah, the, 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 like, I, I, just looking at the NAACP's demands, and it's, it seems like 
just absolute no-brainer stuff that they're asking for. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and you say, how is this not already the rules? And the answer is always police unions. And or they qualified don't, immunity. <laughs> yeah. They, they don't want accountability. And up until now, they haven't had to have any. Uh, hopefully, that's, hopefully something will change on that score. If it was just the unions, I don't think they would have this much power. It's the also the culture of lionizing uh, law enforcement and the military that um, comes from certain parts of the country. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Like, you can't have this level of evil without a fair chunk of public support. I don't know. Yeah. Um, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs can be a real bitch. Yeah, as as David pointed out earlier, you do see kind of a similar thing with police unions. They have a lot of rules in place to prevent any accountability. You mean teachers' unions? I'm sorry, yes, teachers' unions. Yeah, and teachers' unions also have a large chunk of the population that really lionizes them and calls them, you know, the saviors of the next generation or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, I agree with David. There's a lot of parallels um, between the problems with both of them. Yeah. But at least but I the say, teachers' unions aren't killing people with impunity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the the school-to-prison pipeline is not something to laugh off, but yeah. I, I gotta say, though, I wonder to what extent... Like, there's a bit of a chicken-and-egg problem with the unions and lionizing, because a lot of these uh, apparently common-sense reforms haven't happened because... Uh, are these common sense reforms that let the public easily access information about how bad things are, aren't in place because the unions have prevented them from being enacted. So when you have the unions blocking uh, reforms that would let people know how bad things are, then the lionization becomes easier, which makes union special interest politicking easier, which lets them block more reforms and so on. So... It's a bit of a feedback loop, and I'm not sure that, uh, I think if you knocked out the union somehow, it's very possible that the, that there would be a sharp decline in the lionization just because, uh, more people will be able to see how the sausage gets made. Got a question. Did you guys, uh, really, did you guys see The Joker, the movie that came out last year? Yes. No. Okay, well, uh, the Joker basically depicts um, 19, late 1970s, early 1980s New York. And the thing is, there was a massive crime wave around that period of time in a uh, lot of America's cities. Uh, and the crime get... wave was a little bit later than the 70s to 80s. It was more late 80s, early 90s. Okay, I, I, I specifically remember like the during the cyberpunk era and things... Uh, Movies like RoboCop, there were a lot of those movies around, a lot of people fearing super predators, and I think at least part of the problem we're dealing with today is that people were really scared of this influx of crime, and, I mean, you could tell it was pervasive through the culture. It was what a lot of our movies were about, and the the reaction that the public had in giving the police all this power and all this military equipment... Uh, it has come home to roost. It has really screwed us over now. But um, we we would have to, at the very least, find a way to make sure that sort of crime wave does not happen again, because otherwise we're just going to be 
back here again in another 20, 25 years when uh, everyone decides that the police are the best thing ever and should be completely unfettered and allowed to do whatever they need to do. Well, I don't think anyone's advocating uh, re-letting gasoline, so I don't think there's going to be that <laughs> much uh, risk of that. But if Oh, Trump I was going to say the same thing. Then, uh, if Trump gets re-elected, then all bets are off. Uh, although, speaking of the election, um, Joe Biden did write a significant one of those bills that led to the current mess. So if you want to strategically vote for Biden in order to get rid of Trump, I think that's a sound decision. But also, Biden has a terrible, terrible track record with this sort of thing, and... If you think he's going to be a savior, then you should prepare yourself for disappointment. I thought the whole point of Biden was that nobody thinks he's a savior. <laughs> I've you were I've heard people say otherwise and it upsets me, but like I said, the yeah. the good they, reason they should not say otherwise. Yeah. You were gonna say something about the crime wave? Oh yes. yes. My my going theory for the crime wave of the late 80s what is lead um i think there is a lot of evidence that lead specifically lead and gasoline um contributed significantly to a generation growing up just more violent and less inhibited than previous or or later generations. So I would not expect to see that sort of crime wave again um, now that gasoline has been unleaded and lead mitigation is ongoing uh, and getting better every year. Although I hope so. Although if uh, if we don't re-lead gasoline and uh, the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, then we can finally resolve the question of whether it was lead or abortion. Uh, which I, I find the prospect of Roe v. Wade getting overturned a little bit dystopian, but the uh, empirical economist in me is a little bit excited to get a natural experiment to settle that. I think the racial warfare that the government waged by criminalizing certain drugs uh, and drastically criminalizing some more than others uh, also had a big impact, so... Now that that's also going away, I think things are looking better. I maybe, but it seems like the crime wave passed without any changes uh, on the uh, the legal legality or non legality yeah. of drugs. Uh, yeah. the, as far as know, I as far as I know, crack cocaine is still le- illegal in all fifty states. So I'm not sure you've got a. Yeah. Uh, not sure you've got a good argument there. Yeah, legalizing weed will certainly lead to less crime in that the same amount of people will be smoking weed, but it won't be illegal. But when you talk about the crime wave of the 80s, it really is like a spike in violent crime. Right. We also have the harsh militarized police we need to uh, keep things locked down in cities when you've made crack cocaine and other sorts of uh, drugs that illegal for only certain people. Yeah, and really targeted enforcement with your war on drugs. Exactly. I I really want to make a joke here about how uh, reefer madness from people smoking the devil's weed might make uh, another crime wave, but it's not coming together. (laughs) I believe it is the devil's lettuce, sir. (laughs) 
So what's the what's the abortion theory? Is it that all the violent babies got aborted? Uh, yeah, basically. Um, so it's it's a it's <laughs> That's a theory. Ridiculous. It's a theory that was put forth in um, Freakonomics. Uh, it's it's if you're not an economist and not interested in economics, but have heard about Freakonomics, you probably heard about it because there was this giant media shitstorm about. Uh, this book that argued that abortion was good, uh, which is not what it argues at all, but that's how the media reported it. Um, basically, uh, if you look at the demographics of uh, women who started getting abortions, and then uh, you look at the demographics of women who had children just before Roe v. Wade, and whose children went on to become criminals, they're pretty much demographically identical. So, uh, poor minorities usually live in cities. So Steve Levitt basically argued that uh, a possible explanation for why crime fell off a cliff was because all of the prospective criminals got aborted after Roe v. Wade. Uh, it's not my preferred explanation, but Levitt is a very diligent researcher and I, I think it's at least worth taking seriously because Levitt is very good at his job. Alright, interesting theory. Not one I'm putting a lot of stock in, but it's out there. Yep. Uh, I can probably try to find the actual paper uh, where he made the case and we can put it in the show notes to balance out the sociology paper that's gonna be in our show notes. <laughs> Wes. Oh, sociology, barf. Yeah. I, uh, in, in case it wasn't clear, I am an unapologetic and unironic supporter of economic imperialism. Um, so, yeah. I don't think anyone missed that. What does economic imperialism mean in your particular case? Uh, basically, economic imperialism is this phenomenon that's been happening over the last 30 years or so where economics has taken over every other social science because economists are good at our jobs and other so and other social <laughs> scientists are not the other social scientists say other things but they're wrong um yeah basically oh it's hard to argue with people who are right yeah uh basically the the short version is um, economists are like actual scientists doing actual science and um, other social scientists are basically just being hatchet men for uh, left-wing academics. And so if you are interested in sociology or history or whatever... Um, but uh, want to actually do science, what you do is you take a few statistics classes and then go into economic history or economic sociology or whatever. And uh, there has actually been some research on this and economics departments are um, getting a lot of bright young graduate students pulling, pulling them away from other social science departments and the other social science departments are salty about it because they're bad and we're good and they hate the good for being the good. 
Well, All right. Alrighty. Yeah. An unbiased take on K- completely one hundred percent objective versus. and uncontroversial. Totally. All right. Moving on. Uh, David, you are going to talk about uh, the acceptability of protests during the pandemic. Yes. So there is a correct way or a good way to make the case that uh, the protests from two weeks ago, uh, or in subjective time, uh, a thousand years ago, uh, where people were protesting the lockdown because they're, uh, they wanted to be able to run their non-essential businesses and make a living, uh, there's a way to make the argument that those protests were bad and the current Black Lives Matter protests are good. The way you make that case is, yes, there's probably going to be uh, some second waves of COVID from these protests, and that will be unfortunate, but uh, police brutality is a serious and urgent enough problem that it is worth it. The people who are protesting the lockdown itself, um, though their suffering is real, their problems are not commensurate to the public health risk, and therefore those protests were bad. That is not the case that people are making. A lot of uh, public health officials, including a bunch of epidemiologists, have smoothly transitioned from, of course the lockdown protests were obviously bad and there was nothing redeeming about them, to, you know, actually these Black Lives Matter protests will contribute a lot to herd immunity and blah blah blah. <laughs> and wow. I hate this so much. Pick a goddamn lane. Either protests in general are bad, but these one protests happen to pass a cost-benefit analysis, or protests in general are good, but those other protests happen to not pass a cost-benefit analysis. You can't have your cake and eat it, too. You know who's really keeping the faith on this? Who's that? Greta Thunberg. Uh, <laughs> She's out there like, uh, guys, look, I know you want to protest, but let's do it online. Huh. Yeah. Uh, uh, so far, so far, she's I mean, the only I mean, person consistent. I've seen being consistent on this. Mm. Um, and I'll link this in the show show notes. Uh, there's an article, uh, or I think this is a uh, another tweet storm by a an epidemiologist named Trevor Bedford, who put out a uh, a, a sort of back of the envelope calculation about how many infections and deaths we could be seeing from these protests. And he said, assuming that um, 600,000 people are out every day, um, which was his estimate of, of the high number of people um, that are out protesting, I would translate into about 3,000 infections, and that would translate into 15 to 30 deaths. Um, but then after factoring... In downstream effects, the death toll rises to between 500 and 1,000 deaths, and that's per day of protesting. Holy shit. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, this is serious uh, effects we're talking about. However, 
Um, I think we talked last time about how we're skeptical of this, and none of us really expect to see a spike in in the rate. Now, I uh, to to clarify, I I do expect to see a spike. I just don't expect to see a five hundred to one thousand per day spike. Yeah. Uh, so I I looked at some footage of these protests, and it really is your classic super spreading activity. It's just just oh, yeah. huge groups of people packed into small spaces, all yelling and chanting, um, which has been shown to be one of the the easiest ways to transmit. Um, I I get the distinct impression that anyone going to this protest doesn't really think that uh, there's going to be these these effects, these COVID effects, because if they thought that they were going to die from this, would that many people really go out? Like, I think they're working on the same information that we are, that this uh, pandemic has not been that bad at all in the last few months. I'm sure they don't think they're going to die. Yeah, but I'm not sure how much of that is, like, an actual rational cost-benefit calculation and how much of it is just, like, standard political tribalism where, oh, uh, the big important people in my tribe say I need to be angry and go out and protest now, so I guess we're not doing the COVID anymore. Uh, I, I, would not, I would not put enough faith in the uh, median American voter to actually, like, assume that there are people who are sitting down with pieces of paper and the latest epidemiological data and then doing a sensible Bayesian calculation of probabilities multiplying by the uh, respective payouts and coming to an actual cost-benefit um, ratio. Yeah, no one is doing no one's doing anything with numbers, obviously, but the general attitude, the emotions that people are displaying are those of people who have the feeling that these, this thing isn't actually all that bad. And, I mean, I think that is justified because that is what has been demonstrated publicly, right? I mean, if they thought that it wasn't that bad, then I would expect them to have been saying, oh, calm down about those lockdown protesters. It's really not that bad. They'll be oh, that's fine. not what we'll you'd expect. Fine. And that's not what... I mean, so if I expected there to be a generalized sense of the pandemic isn't that bad, then that is what I'd expect. But instead... Like, people last, uh, or two or three weeks ago saw that, per the name of this podcast, uh, (laughs) super spreading events or something we need to take really seriously was an enemy soldier, and so they needed to shoot at it, but then this week, uh, or, sorry, reverse that, they saw that it was an allied soldier, and so they deployed it against the enemy, and then this week they see super spreading events are something we need to take seriously and be worried about as an enemy soldier, and so they're shooting at it. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But I think the left is particularly good at, to use a phrase that we've used before, towing the party line. <laughs> when Even when they don't necessarily 100% believe it. I, I actually have been getting the sense that there are a lot of people thinking that the locked the, that the the pandemic really isn't that bad it's certainly not as bad as we were told it was going to be 
Um, and I, I hope that people are thinking that because I think, you know, our public health authorities deserve to lose a lot of credibility um, for what they've been saying and what the actual reality is. You know, I think these protests show, I think these protests do show that these people uh, out protesting, you know, were of the opinion that it wasn't that bad or at least isn't that bad now. And that if there's a, you know, sufficiently urgent need, then the quarantine should end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to see the tiniest, tiniest shred of intellectual consistency, but I've long since given up hope that what I want to see will actually happen. But as I've said twice before, and the rule of threes must be obeyed, I can still dream. And qualified immunity. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and I'll post this in the show notes, but Zvi Moskowitz has a good um, take on this that basically says that after these protests, the, the lockdown's effectively over. That it's going oh, yeah. to be really impossible to tell people that they should not see their loved ones or go to their job or m- make a living. Um, after they're watching the exact same people that yelled at them to stay home now cheering on these protests that are the exact thing that they were told not to do. Well, let me caveat that. If it turns out there is a huge spike in coronavirus cases and a lot of people start dying, then I think people would be like, oh, shit, okay, this was a big deal, and uh, the lockdown was helping things. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that happened yet. It's already been a week or more than a week since the first protests, right? Yes. Yeah, but the incubation... And nothing's been happening Yeah, yet. but the incubation period was like 10 to 14 days, I think. So, I... I, I heard, like, between 5 and 14, so I would have expected to see something happening by it's now. It's also been 10 to 14 days. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we'll give it another yeah. week, but... Um, uh, we'll see. If there is a huge spike in deaths, then people will definitely keep the lockdown going. Expect us to follow up on this one way or the other next episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And one thing that may be relevant to this that just came out, that I just saw a few hours before we started recording, was an announcement from the WHO that um, asymptomatic spreading of COVID-19 is very rare, which fucking blew my mind. Right, which I I don't trust anything the WHO says anymore. But if this is true, this is huge. Because the the entire reason for the lockdown is is because you can't know if you have it. So if you go out and do things, you could be spreading it without knowing it. But if this is accurate that it's, you know, they say you can you can still spread it when you're asymptomatic, but that it's very rare and it's not the main driver of infection, then we can the lockdown can end. That's it. We can stop doing it. Uh, so this is uh, something I certainly want to keep an eye on. I'm torn between thinking this is good news because it means that this pandemic will be easier to beat than we thought. And like, seriously, fuck these fucking fuckers. Like, <laughs> the, and this is something that the WHO has definitely been complicit in, but they haven't been the only ones. The, the pro-lockdown side has done so much just absolute tomfuckery with the data and their models, and they have absolutely refused to 
even consider the possibility that they might be overestimating the risk until the evidence that they overestimated the risk just became completely irrefutable, and then they just quietly moved the goalposts and hoped no one would notice. And, like, I do think that the lockdowns were probably a good idea, but the pro-lockdown side has gone about defending that position in the absolute shittiest way imaginable, and it really pisses me off. Yeah, and David, you had shared an article about Sweden, uh, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's not a, it's not an article. It's a Facebook post by Phil Magnus, who has done a lot of documenting of the aforementioned Tom Fuckery. Um, it's uh, a paper, uh, doing some pandemic modeling for Sweden because Sweden did not have a lockdown. Uh, this paper predicted that, uh, let's see, for the, um, the assumed doubling time of three days condition, uh, on June 1st, they would have around 100,000 deaths if they did not enact a lockdown. Uh, they'd have about 40,000 deaths if they immediately enacted a full lockdown. Ladies and gentlemen, June 1st has come and gone. And, uh, Sweden has had about, mm, just eyeballing this graph, it's hard to tell, uh, but looks like maybe 5,000 deaths? So, so, this is without implementing a lockdown. Yes. Meaning this model was off by about an order of magnitude. And this sort of thing has been going on this entire goddamn pandemic. And that yeah. is and, and why the... I'm convinced that this is the Masters of the Matrix trying to make life a hell for me personally. <laughs> and one of the things here that's really been frustrating to me is that, you know, you called them the pro-lockdown side. But they're, that the pro-lockdown side is everyone, uh, basically, who is at all involved in public health. Like, every yes. scientist, every epidemiologist... Every public health authority has been pro-lockdown and has been uh, just not being honest with people. Or they're either really incompetent or they're lying. And I think they're lying. Um, well, a lot of that is based on the assumption that there was asymptomatic spreading, right? Yes. Asymptomatic. Yeah, I mean, it was based on a lot of assumptions that, in retrospect, weren't uh, justified. Um, but it's, you know, I, I, I've seen... The a couple of quotes where the veil falls away uh, by accident, or they they say like, "Oh yeah, I mean, we were never that sure, but we just had to to pretend we were sure because then uh, if we if we didn't, people wouldn't listen to us." Can and, I make a small case for lockdown in some cases? No, I mean, I, I David said he's a, he thinks the lockdowns were probably uh, a reasonable thing to do. I think they were too. Um, no, no. I, given the information we had, yes, I think they were. Yeah. But even given the uh, fact that these things are asy uh, that asymptomatic spreading is extremely rare, I still think that some places could benefit from lockdown. Um, specifically, those places where people don't can't or don't um, stay home if they do have symptoms. And I am thinking very specifically of uh, big, busy cities like New York, where you need to fucking hustle 
if you want to keep your job and everyone's super concerned about their careers, there's places where I know a lot of people who would go to work even when sick because they're like, fuck it, I can't miss a day of work. I have to keep on top of my shit. I got to keep showing my boss I'm awesome and whatever. I, I have a fever. I can work through it. Uh, and they just don't care that much about spreading to other people. And I think that in cultures like that, where people are not considerate of the health of their uh, neighbors and coworkers, an imposed lockdown for at least some time forces all of society to say, hey, this is really fucking serious. Don't go to work and adjust the cultural norms around that. Uh, if you have any symptoms, you really do stay Yeah, home. I think I, – and I agree that something huge was necessary to combat those cultural norms of, like, you know, winners just never – never call in sick yeah um one other thing about this this asymptomatic spreading announcement is if this is true this could account for the differences or the lack of differences between say sweden and neighboring countries that had lockdowns um because a lot of these the speculation up until now has been that well you know they're they didn't have a lockdown, but they had basically the same thing in terms of voluntary behavior that that everyone, you know, as soon as they started experiencing symptoms would go self-quarantine. Um, and that was enough to have them follow the same pattern as everyone else. And that would make a lot more sense if asymptomatic spreading was as rare as they're saying. Yeah, I I haven't done enough of a deep dive into the research to hell if that would be enough to cover the spread but that's at least plausible at first blush yeah well i know we talked about this on some previous episodes but that i was finding it really baffling as to why we never saw the exponential growth that they said we were going to see and why mm-hmm. every country seems to have the same pa- growth pattern regardless of government policy when some countries are like completely locking down and some countries are doing basically nothing um, I think that would be an answer. So hopefully, and, and I really hope that that turns out to be true. Uh, but like I said, it's, it's, I, I, I read it today from the WHO very, um, details are hard to come by. So we'll see. All right. I think we got happy. All news right. Today. Yes. That takes us to happy news. And David, you had a piece of happy news for us. Yes. So. Uh, my troop deployment for last episode was this pie-in-the-sky notion that uh, if the lo- if the crackdowns on Hong Kong from the uh, Chinese government continue, that uh, the UK should consider uh, opening immigration to any Hong Kong citizens who want to move to Britain. And imagine my surprise when a couple of days later I saw that Boris Johnson had announced an intention that if the Chinese national security law passes, uh, that he will allow any Hong Kongers who uh, had or were eligible to get uh, British passports, which is about 3 million Hong Kongers, if I remember right. So I think around a tenth of the uh, population, which is not all of them, but it is a very good start, uh, would be eligible to migrate to Great Britain. Uh, It was just an announcement, and it's conditional on uh, 
It's an announcement, not an actual law getting passed, uh, and it is conditional on the Chinese uh, law going through. So who knows if what it'll actually look like on the other side of the political sausage getting made, and hopefully the Chinese law just doesn't pass. And I say doesn't pass like they have a legislature with representatives that are elected. But anyway, hopefully the Chinese law doesn't go through and it becomes a moot point. But if it does happen, then uh, Boris Johnson will be possibly one of the best politicians ever, which still feels weird to say, but holy shit, that would be an amazing thing. Boris, if you're listening, please don't wimp out. Just do it. Make your dreams come true. I think even the fact that he made this announcement it reduces the chances of the Chinese law being passed because, you know, they aren't going to assume that it's going to pass automatically, but someone's going to at least take into consideration if we do crack down like this, there is a chance that three million people might just flee Hong Kong. And uh, that that could temper what they do somewhat, I hope. It is So it is a good move on Johnson's part to make this announcement, even if nothing comes of it, I guess is what I'm yeah. saying. All right. Well, that takes us to troop deployments. As we all know, politics is the mind killer and arguments are soldiers. So in that spirit, we invite each of our three hosts to send a soldier out onto the field of battle. And we will start with David. Um, so real quick, before we get to troop deployments, I do want to say that thing that just happened where one of us describes a story and then the other two are like, yep, that would be a good thing if it happens or yep, that would be a bad thing. Uh, that's happened like quite a few times. So if there's a news story you heard about that seems important that we didn't talk about, Chances are we brought it up in our uh, private Discord channel and then just decided, yeah, that does seem important, but also doesn't seem like there's much interesting discussion to be had. So that's uh, just a little inside baseball for you. Anyway, my troop deployment uh, is actually a bit of old news right now, but uh, no one's talked about it because it's a very niche thing. Um so I am participating in an Infinity Tournament. Infinity is a tabletop war game uh, that is being played on Tabletop Simulator, which if you haven't seen it, I recommend you check it out. It's basically a very simple physics engine with a bunch of assets that look like board game pieces, and it lets you play board games on, uh, uh, on a computer over the internet uh, it's a great way if you're into the trad gaming scene to keep it up during the lockdown. Um, anyway, this particular tournament I'm in uh, is notable because Corvus Belli, the company that makes Infinity, uh, offered to officially support the tournament. And... Like, uh, they had to decline because the way they're formatting the tournament is wasn't compatible with uh, the official Corvus Belli format, and trying to change it at the last minute would have caused more problems than it solved. But especially wargaming companies have had kind of a low-scale war going on with Tabletop Simulator, because... If you're just playing on Tabletop Simulator, you aren't buying models, which is how they make their money. Uh, so, 
having a wargaming company offering to officially support a tabletop simulator tournament is mind-blowing, and I think it'll be a really good thing, because I think uh, Tabletop Simulator will end up being a gateway drug for a lot of people, so it won't actually hurt their bottom lines. It'll just get a lot more people into the hobby. Um, so, yeah, uh, good on you, Corvus Belli, and I hope to see a lot more of this soon, uh, and it'll be the future soon. All right. Thank mm. you, David. Eniash, what do you have it's for a great us? song, too. Uh, what I have is um, a claim that coronavirus, the, the main impact of coronavirus is going to be that this police reform uh, happened uh, when, in the, when the history books look back on this. I think, um, well, I, I just kind of want to mention this chain of events. Are you guys familiar with the whole uh, reason, the chain of events that led from um, bad writing on Star Trek Voyager being uh, resulting in Barack Obama being elected president? No. No. It sounds very galaxy brain, though, so please go on. <laughs> okay. It, it, it's it's great, but um, Star Trek Voyager uh, had bad writing, as most any Star Trek fan who was watching at the time can tell you, and uh, it started struggling in its later seasons, and so the producers thought, hey, you know what everybody loves? Hot chicks. Let's put a hot chick in the show, and that'll make everything better. Uh, but surprisingly... Uh, they, what was originally meant to be purely a fan service character, was a really good, compelling character. They finally had their version of Spock or Data, like the outsider uh, that didn't understand emotions and shit. Anyways, the person that they hired uh, was hot chick Jerry Ryan, and I really want to apologize for describing her as that. She's a great actress, has lots of things to commend her, but, you know, when producers were looking for someone, that's what they wanted. Uh, Jerry Ryan had to start putting in a lot of long hours doing the Star Trek Voyager shooting, as one does, and uh, had to go out to Los Angeles, which left her estranged from her husband, who was a senator in Illinois. That senator in Illinois then went on to have an affair while she was gone and uh, lose his Senate seat as a result. That Senate seat went to young upstart Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> who uh, soon after that was the uh, ran for president as one of the most junior members of the Senate and won the presidency. So yes, because of bad writing on Star Trek Voyager, Barack Obama got elected president. Uh, there were other things, obviously, that were involved as well, but this was the most important one. That that was indeed very galaxy brain. I'm not disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, similar to that, uh, I... I got to thinking why the hell is this time in history so different because the cops have been brutalizing people and specifically minorities for at least two and a half decades now um it's been public knowledge for a long time and even just within the last few years where we've gotten a lot of things on uh cell phone footage and it's been made known to the public and there have been riots and protests nothing changed regardless um but now something is finally changing, and I think a lot of it is simply due to the fact that we had this lockdown imposed by coronavirus. There are a lot of people with um, much more time on their hands than they used to have. There's a lot of pent-up energy where people are stuck indoors and really pissed off about it. And the, um, the virus is very obviously not nearly as bad as people thought. So people... Uh, as people initially thought so people are not scared to go out and protest and have these um have these mass gatherings like they would be if the virus was a much bigger deal 
Um, incidentally, at the same time, the media has been really sick of covering just the coronavirus for so long. They needed something new to attract eyeballs. And importantly, this distracts a bit from the fact that uh, we may have been on lockdown for no good reason, since the, as the asymptomatic spreading doesn't really happen and the virus isn't that big a deal. And pivoting to this new issue takes all the all the blame that the government might otherwise uh, and the liberal uh, thought leaders might otherwise get backlash for uh, overcorrecting, even though they were working on the best information they had at the time, maybe. Uh, focusing on this new area will quickly allow them to ignore the possible coronavirus backlash. And I think there was just a perfect storm of a number of social and media and political forces that really brought this to the fore and none of that would have happened if it wasn't for coronavirus and the resulting lockdown. And uh, so, yeah, thank you, China, for bringing us police reform. <laughs> All right. And my soldier this week is uh, a Black Lives Matter. Um, I think, you know, if you read the pieces that we'll be putting in the show notes, there's, it seems like it's very hard to tease out what is caused by racism and what is not caused by racism when it comes to police violence. But one thing that's not controversial is that uh, black Americans and brown Americans suffer disproportionately at the hands of police. And if that's not uh, because of current racism, it is certainly because of past racism. So um, I think my, my, so for my troop deployment this week, I just wanted to highlight that and uh, say that I support all the protests going on um, and not just because I hate the police, but because uh, there is a legacy of racism in this country that uh, black and brown people have been suffering under for hundreds of years. And uh, I think I support uh, all the protests out there that are uh, trying to address that. Here, here. My, my, uh, my galaxy brain version of Black Lives Matter, of which I am fond, is all lives matter but there's a certain specific way in which black people are disproportionately killed that should be fairly easy to fix so it's okay if we give that special attention for a while makes for a very good <laughs> hashtag <laughs> great hashtag all right that's our show for this week uh thank you for listening you can follow us um anywhere you listen to podcasts we're on apple google stitcher pocket cast and we have a dedicated rss feed that you can plug into any podcatcher um if you have something to say to us you can chat with us on the bayesian conspiracy discord or you can email us at the mindkillerpodcast at gmail.com um if you say something smart we might mention you on the next show um, and thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Same rat time, same rat channel. Great reviews on your favorite episode. And goodbye.